grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we gather today, it's a joy as we continue to see how God works in our lives. By who he is as our Father, by who he is as the Son, and by who he is as the Holy Spirit. As we gather in this place to know that our God is real. And that he is the God above all other gods. The one true God. And so we gather in this place, and as we know that to be the truth, how we know that to be the truth as we dive into Scripture and we read His Word, as His Spirit continues to work on us, and as we see examples of old and as we go through life and learn to trust in that way. Often easier said than done. And today, um, as you look at our Old Testament, our epistle, and our New Testament, our gospel lesson, there's a reason that for over 500 years, these texts have been coupled together. Did you know they've been coupled together that long, even though they're written at different times? And because as uh, church fathers, meaning uh, the old guys from forever ago, began looking through, and they wanted to make sure that as we gathered in our father's house... That we would grow in relationship with him. That we'd better understand who he is always. And so the readings that we have each week reflect that. And they go together so beautifully um, in an understandable way for this week. And so you might be wondering a little bit, well, they're such different stories, Pastor. How do they all go together? Um, You might know so well as you sit down and tell stories with people as you talk, as you get to know somebody new and you learn each other's history, that you end up having a lot in common. The stories are never the same, though, are they? They're always kind of close together. But you understand things that you've been through, things that you've experienced, places that you've been, people that you've known. And all of a sudden, the stories begin to match up. It's funny how different we are and yet how much the same we are. For example, did you ever notice when a woman says that she'll be ready in five minutes, how long does it really take? <laughs> notice, none, notice none of the men are going to answer that one. They're like, oh, not, I have no idea. I've never noticed before. But men aren't that way. But have you ever noticed when a man says, I'll be home in five minutes or done in five minutes, how long does it take? Five minutes, right? That's all it ever takes. Okay? We just set our watch by the sun. That's all. So a different idea, right? But yet the same thing, showing up in a different way. And so we get to know each other kind of in that way where we have similarities, but yet differences, where our identities look the same, but yet they also contrast each other. And so today, as we learn this lesson in our scripture, um, we begin to see Jesus talking with the disciples and he's training them, teaching them, helping them and walking along with them all at the same time. And so he's imparting wisdom to them, but he's also helping them along. So he's not just leaving them where they're at, but he's also giving them opportunity. And in today's gospel, as he's walking and talking, it says that his eyes are set on Jerusalem. And the disciples at this point still aren't getting why he's going there. And people are beginning to not, well, as Jesus comes through town, they're not for sure if they want to listen to him. Because they know he's going to Jerusalem at this point. And they're worried about what upheaval is going to come along with it. He's gathered a following. If he goes in there and let's say he's not strong enough to do what they think he's going to do. And if they're identified as being in cahoots with him, what will then happen to them? And so as Jesus is walking with the disciples and people are saying, no, we don't want to do this. Because remember, they thought he was a political figure. 
not the Messiah, not the King of the Kings, but political figure, a descendant of David. They thought that he was going to go and try to take over the palace again. And so they want to avoid him a little bit. And I, here's, here's where I love the arrogance or the pompousness of the disciples. Jesus, they're not listening. You want to bring down fire on them? Right? They're like 10-year-old boys. Like, let's see what we can get God to do, right? If we're going to cause any fight, what are we going to do? So they're not listening. So let's show our power and authority. Let's show our strength. Let's show what we're made of. So that way, if they're scared, then you know what happens to scared people? They'll fall in line, won't they? And so they say, let's scare them a little bit. Let's teach them a lesson. Let's show them who we are. And then they'll just fall in line with everything we're doing. It makes me smile because they know that the one whom they're following yields that type of power. But they're missing what he would use that power for. They don't understand the capability of what Christ is seeking to accomplish. And so the story continues on, and where it gets a little bit confusing to us is as we begin to understand the emotional aspect of what Christ is actually asking the people to do. And that emotional aspect of what he's asking them to do is to come follow me. And as they begin to understand what it means to follow him, he's asking them to leave things behind. Now, you and I know that's the reality. If you were here and you go to here, you're leaving something behind. You can't take everything with you. Or sometimes you try to, but it's not always conducive to being able to do so. But the examples that are given here in the text are a little bit, well, bothersome. One example is that he wants to be able to go and tell everybody goodbye. And Jesus says, no, you're going to come follow me. Well, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Because anybody who's ever taken a kid to college, what do you do? You say your goodbyes, right? As the bride and groom leave the wedding reception, you say your goodbyes, okay? And so it seems very harsh to us that he would say, don't do that. The one that feels even more harsh than that is when the gentleman says that, no, I can follow you, but let me go home and first bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Seem like the type of guy you want to hang out with? Seems like the type of guy you're going to say, hey, come meet my friend. Great guy. And so we have to unpack that because even though that sounds incredibly harsh, you've got to remember Jesus has been walking and talking and teaching with these people and he's trying to help them to understand something they haven't gotten yet. And for this, it takes us back to even our Old Testament lesson then today. And here we're talking about Elisha, not Elijah, even though they overlap in the scriptures. Uh, It's confusing there because their names almost sound the same. But Elisha is who we're talking about today. And as God is working through his people um, and he begins to utilize those people who are still in Israel who haven't begun to worship pagan gods or false gods. And Elisha was out in the field. Did you catch what he was doing when he was out in the field with the oxen today? What was he doing? He was plowing, and it said that he had 12 oxen, or 12 yoke of oxen, so we don't know if they were double yoked or if it was single yoke. Usually they're together, so you could think it's 24, but even if it was 12, um, that's a lot of power. You drive through Amish country today, you go out to Indiana, you go up to Missouri, you go out to Pennsylvania, and Amish country, they don't have 12 oxen pulling anything anymore. 
That's a lot of power. That's also with the plow behind it that tells you how rough the ground was and how much muscle or torque it was going to take to be able to turn that ground over just to be able to plant it. And as God begins to work through Elijah and he's doing that hard labor um, and he's plowing up that field, he begins to follow him. And what's interesting right after this, then all of a sudden he goes and what does he do with those oxen? He cooks them. Better wording for it is he makes them into a sacrifice. Notice he doesn't just take one of them. Because let's face it, if you have to plow a field, if you're farming, if you're taking care of everything there, you can spare one of them and still get by with the rest of them. But what does he do with that 12 yoke of oxen? He sacrifices them all as an offering to God. Pretty stupid business decision, if you ask me. Because if they're your livelihood, what just happened? But as God talks to him, where is Elisha showing that his full commitment and trust is? And so in that story today, you and I have to balance, what is God asking us to do? What does it look like to be fully committed to God? And what are the things in our own lives that interfere and get in the way of that? What are the things that cause us, as God comes to us, as he sends to us our Savior, as he forgives us our sins, as he sends his Son to die on the cross to pay a ransom for us that we couldn't pay, as Christ sits there with a crown of thorn on his head, as he's mocked, as he's whipped, as his clothes are taken from him, as he's nailed to the cross, as he breathes his last breath, as they pierce his side, as the blood comes out, as they place him in the tomb. And rises victoriously on the third day. As he defeats death, the devil, and the grave. And as just as Christ was washed in the Jordan, we are washed in the waters of baptism and live in that forgiveness that we receive through Christ. And that blessing of mercy and grace from our Heavenly Father. What in our day-to-day life gets in the way of us actually living like that's true? Rather than just hoping it's right. What in our day-to-day life interferes with us living in that way rather than actually living in a way knowing that it's true? That we can know that we fully trust upon God, that we trust Him completely, and what He gives to us is eternal life. Even though we face sin, trials, and tribulations in this world, that He's given us that gift, and it's not just a hope, but it's a certainty. Did you catch the list in Galatians that gets in the way? It's a list that makes you shift in the pew. Because as you hear it, you want to know what the preacher might know about you or not know about you. Or what your family knows about you or doesn't know about you. Or what the person sitting next to you knows about you or doesn't know about you. The words were simple. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the work of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is where most of you go, well, the orgy one I don't do. And you forget about the rest of the list that's on there. But think of the emotional aspect of every single one that's on there. And you and I begin to blur lines and shade them and say, well, it's not like they did this. It's not like I said this. It's not as if I act in this way. It's not like I'm like my brother. It's not as if I followed my sister. It's not as if the generation before me didn't do this and I'm doing anything different. I'm just a real person, so sometimes it slips out. It's not like it's hurting anybody else. It's only impacting me. Have you ever used one of those excuses? Just about every five minutes, right? This is the conversation Jesus is having with the disciples as he walks. And this is the conversation we have to have with ourselves as Christians as we walk in faith. And we have to sit there and think what in our life would cause us to be so faithful in the manner in which Elisha was that we'd be willing to sacrifice everything we have because we know that walking with God and spending time with Christ and being his disciple and being saved by a Savior for which we cannot save ourselves is the ultimate thing. And it has more value than anything else. It doesn't even stack up in value to everything else. That we would be willing to deny everything else for that one sake, no matter how horrible everything else was. And having that one thing from God, that gift of Christ, who won for us eternal life, that we would forsake all other things. Here's the beauty of the God whom we serve. He doesn't just tell us all the bad things we're supposed to leave behind. He lists off what he gives to us to combat them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You and I often hear the phrase, isn't love just enough? Where are you getting your example of love from? A Savior who forsook everything that was going on. A Savior who stood at the pinnacle of the temple and was offered the entire world. A Savior who was starving after he fasted and could have made food and water right there and then. A Savior who was promised to be able to rule over things and make it that way, but instead, in every moment where he was tested and tempted, trusted in the one true God, his Father. Even in the midst of staring down sin, even in the midst of seeing all that was wrong, even in the midst of walking through life, even in the midst of people around him living imperfectly, still trusted. Elisha, Standing in the middle of where in all of Israel, did you hear what it said? That they only could find 7,000 that who hadn't bent a knee or kissed the statue of Baal. That's all that was reserved. That's all that was left in the nation. Everybody else had somehow given into the falsehoods because it was more convenient. 
So everybody else had said, yeah, I'm just going to love them. And by loving them, they said, I'm just going to let them do what they want to do. Any of you who are a parent or any of you who have ever been parented, is that the way love works? Just let them do what they want to do? As Jesus walks with the disciples, you begin to see that love come forth as he corrects their behavior. And as he corrects their behavior, he teaches them. He doesn't just teach them so he can say that he's right. He teaches them so that they can better see who the Father is. He teaches them so that as they learn who the Father is, and then they can better teach others who the Father is. So that as you and I go through a world full of sin, as you and I are inflicted by the very sins that we read there in Galatians, and every shade and color of them, every glimpse of them, every possibility of them, so instead of living according to those and being burdened by Satan himself, that you and I get to live by the fruits of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'd rather spend my day having people be happy. But I don't want it to be a fake happy. I want them to have joy in their life because they know who their Savior is. And so when Jesus speaks these words to the people that are asking to come follow him, and they say they want to be able to go and say goodbye. They want to be able to get rid of their possessions. They want to be able to go and bury their family. The reason Jesus says the comment that he has said, because for generations somebody hadn't taught them, and so they didn't know that everything was going to be okay, even though all those things were going on. In the midst of the world, and sin still being in it, where we see death and decay, right? Where we see moth and rust destroy. People didn't know that everything could be okay because of what God had accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus is walking with his disciples, he's trying to teach them and say, look, there's generations that don't even know what I'm talking about because they're finding their safety and security in earthly things. This is the work, disciples, that you have cut out for you. Jesus wasn't being mean to those people. He was trying to help teach the ones who needed to teach everybody else who he was and what he accomplished. It wasn't harshness in the words. It was the reality that you will always depend upon something else if it's easier to depend upon or so seems to be. It's not always easy to teach somebody to do something right, is it? If you want it done right, just do it yourself. And sometimes we don't trust how God's doing it, do we? And we see something broken and we wonder why it's not put back together. But are you looking for the things that destroy? Or in the midst of destruction, are you seeing what God provides in it? Do you see the fruits of the Spirit even when sin is present? It's no easy thing to do. Jesus, in these words, as he finishes, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then at the end of our gospel lesson, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll leave you with this story. When you go out into the field and you see those wonderful rows of corn or soybeans or cotton, one of the things that they do throughout the summer is they make sure that the weeds stay out of the middle so it doesn't choke them off. 
And when you initially plow, you plow a straight line, right? And you plant it straight so that way when you go down and take the weeds out, as you go through and disc and you cultivate as you go through, you tear up the other weeds then. It becomes very simple. But when you're making a straight row, whether it's plowing a field or it's mowing the lawn, are you looking right in front of you or are you looking at something else off in the distance? You look off in the distance, don't you? Not at a glance or not at a glaze. You actually have to focus on something in the distance. And if you don't focus at something in the distance, as you look behind you, what happens to your line? What happens to your row? It goes like that. I think most of the roads in Tennessee were made by somebody looking over their shoulder. As a farm kid driving the tractor and going through the cornfield before it got too tall, making sure the weeds were torn up, um, some of you will remember these things called a Walkman or a Discman, depending on which one you had. And I was so happy, and I was changing the music in it while I was driving, and guessing where I wasn't watching when I went. And I plowed under about a quarter mile of corn. That's why my parents made me pay for college myself, because that was my fund right there that I just, right under. But yet, I could go a half mile, half mile, half mile, half mile, over 180 acres in one spot. And all I had to do was pick a point, and I would never even come close to doing that. The first time teaching Theodore to mow. First time was about safety. The next time was making sure that the lines were straight. A hard lesson to be able to learn. But all you have to do is mow a yard twice and you learn the lesson pretty quick. What are the things that you focus on that you're missing what's further off? What is it that captures you right here rather than knowing the bigger picture that God has set before you? In whatever you face in each and every day and however you walk along with somebody else, may you know that in the moment of hurt, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of the presence of sin, that God has already taken care of all of it. May you trust a Savior who has died a death that you cannot die. And even though you look upon the cross and you see him no longer there knowing that he has risen for you, may you be able to keep your focus there rather than looking back and having things go like this. And know that even as things go like this as you look back, all that you need to do to regain that focus is to again look at him. Because guess what? He never moves, does he? He is that foundation. He is that rock. And may he be your peace this day and always in the glory of the salvation that he has won for you. Amen.